Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacey Jones. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacey Jones, and I'm so happy to be here with you all today, and I want to give a very warm welcome to Chris Kocek. Chris is the founder and CEO of Gallant, a strategy and design studio dedicated to building brands for a better world. With over a decade of digital expertise, Chris is known for using strategic planning and design principles to transform brands for startups and small businesses. He's led the development of nationally recognized campaigns for iconic brands and nonprofits, including Ace Hardware, Hyatt Hotels, Lowe's Home Improvement, and the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. As a frequent speaker at the University of Texas in Austin and author of The Practical Pocket Guide to Account Planning, Chris actively shares his vision on how to craft brand strategies to drive positive change. Today, Chris and I are going to be chatting about how businesses can maximize their marketing budgets to create campaigns that are impactful. We'll learn what works from Chris's perspective, what should be avoided, and how some businesses miss the mark. Chris, welcome. So happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, what I love doing always is starting off of how did you get here today? You're an agency owner in Austin. You've worked with lots of big clients. What has been your career path? Oh, well, like so many strategists, uh, it's very circuitous. Uh, it's a winding road. Uh, Cheryl Crow would say, and uh, and so I would say that kind of the the big break for me um, was when I was in graduate school. My my girlfriend at the time, she is now my wife. Uh, her her parents were standing outside of a school in Connecticut, waiting to pick up their son, and uh, and they were standing the head of BBDO worldwide. So Andrew Robertson was standing there waiting to pick up his son. And they didn't know Andrew. Andrew didn't know them. And so they started chatting and they said, um, and they said, oh, you know, what, what do you do? And he says, I, I work in advertising. He didn't mention he was the CEO of BBDO Worldwide. He just said he worked in advertising very, very humbly. And they said, oh, you know, our, our, our daughter's boyfriend is getting his master's degree in advertising. And he said, oh, really? Okay, well, you know, you should have him send me his resume. So, so I looked him up online when they told me this. I was like, oh, my gosh, nobody gets higher than this. So I need to throw out my old cover letter. I wrote a new cover letter. And I said, you know, there are three things you need to know about me. Uh, I believe in doing well by doing good. Uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And I believe in the power of ideas. And um, And I later found out that Believing in the power of ideas was what hooked him because he said, look, we work in advertising and it's all ideas. And so he set me up with three uh, initial interviews with folks uh, internally uh, and ultimately um, Tracy Lovat, who was the planning director of BBDO at the time. Um, after she interviewed me a little while after she said, well, I think we'd like to keep you here if that's okay uh, in the planning department. So, so that's how I got started. Planning is a good place to start building your strategy capabilities mm -hmm. too. Absolutely. And so now today, here you are, you are coming out, I believe, with another book as well. You are a strategist. What is it you think is working in this land of advertising? Oh boy. I mean, there's, there's so much happening right now. Um, I think some of the 
some of the most interesting campaigns to me usually leverage technology in some interesting way. Not all of them, uh, but definitely some of them are using technology in interesting ways to engage people because people's attention spans are so short these days, right? So there's so much entertainment. There are so many TikTok videos and Instagram videos and threads and, and you name it. So, so how do you stop somebody in their tracks and hold their attention? And, and so I think that there are interesting uh, ways that, that some brands are doing. I mean, some of my favorite campaigns, uh, this one's a little bit older, not, not that old, but a little bit older, like the Share a Coke campaign. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a wonderful example of a campaign that, that harnessed something true about the human experience. People love their own names. Nothing is sweeter than the sound of one's own name. And, and then they leveraged their ability and the technology to, uh, and the data to, you know, to get the most popular names printed on labels and then ultimately to scale that up. And so your average startup can't necessarily scale like that. They can't do that uh, with, with the kind of breadth or depth that Coca-Cola can do it. Um, but that's a great example uh, to me of a, of a campaign that, that really kind of generated a ton of buzz. There are other campaigns out there as well, but, but that one is one that stands out. So technology it can be a big piece of it, but I think that smaller brands can still leverage a lot of the a lot of similar techniques, right? So uh, Coke found out that, or or the thing that they uncovered was the idea that people love the sound of their own name, and they ran with that. And I think that that brands can also uncover or build insights, uh, which is what the the new book is about. Any insights yet? And, and so building insights really starts with talking to your customers and any brand can do that, right? Nine times out of 10, I find even larger brands, they have charts, they have data, but they don't necessarily engage with their customers and talk about what's going on in their lives. Usually the conversation is about, did you like our product? You know, would you recommend our product to a friend on a scale of one to 10? How much did you like it? It's always about the brand or the product, but if you really want to uh, uncover or build an insight, you have to kind of go deeper than the, the, the usual questions. And so how do you do that? Uh, well, one of my favorite techniques is to keep asking why. Ask, ask somebody when they do something, you know, why did you do that? It, 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 can, it can start to get a little annoying sometimes, depending on how you do it. So you have to do it delicately. But you, if you keep asking why, you're going to get to something deeper. Because a lot of times people will give you surface level answers, right? Why did you buy this instead of that? Why did you do this instead of that? Um, and, and they'll tell you, they'll tell you quickly. But if you ask them why, again, then they'll, they'll usually stop and they'll think about it. And, they'll, and then they'll tell you a story. Well, I, I do this this way now because, you know, two years ago, XYZ thing happened. And so now, ever since then, I do it this way. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Tell me more. So you get people into storytelling mode. And this is actually one of the reasons why I love qualitative research before doing any quantitative research, because you can uncover a lot of things that you can't necessarily get from quant initially. Because with quant, you're already, you're already creating the answer set. With qual, you, you let people tell their own stories, 
and you have to be a really active listener. So one of the ways in terms of just an easy tactical thing that you can do to get these kinds of things, let's say you're a food and beverage brand and you're going to be doing sampling. It's just par for the course. You're going to be at a grocery store. You're going to be at an event. You're going to be sampling your product. Well, I would recommend having one other person, at least one other person from your team uh, there with you so that after the person is done sampling, after you've given them your pitch about how wonderful your product is and they're chewing or drinking, that second person pulls them aside and asks them a handful of questions and is recording those answers either on a, on a phone uh, or you know scribbling something down on a notepad, whatever it may be, whatever works. And getting those, those little glimmers of not quite an insight yet, just those little glimmers of human truths or, or certain things that you can start to stack on top of each other to build something bigger. And so when you've done this and you've, you've figured out, you know, how to get feedback in a way that people are open and willing and able to give it to you, how much feedback do you need before you feel like it now actually is something that is able to be quantitative? Well, that's a good question because, you know, qualitative by its very nature is going to be a small, small sample size. So you do have to be careful of that. Um, but one of the things I often say is that directionally, if if you've got 80 or 90 percent of the people that you've spoken to are saying something that's very similar to each other, it's not to say that you shouldn't do quant. But if you've got a limited budget, you know, then try testing that out. Try testing out some things that, that they've said or 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 take what they've said transform it into you know some compelling new headlines some new copy a different campaign idea than than one you've run before and and see if that takes you somewhere you know now if you have the budget and you can do quant on top of the qual that you've been doing then then go ahead and run that survey get you know 500 600 people if you can i mean i think for you know solid statistical significance you're usually looking at anywhere from 1 to 2000 people just to keep your margin of error down but I don't think you you need that if you're getting high consistency with the people you're talking to. You just have to be careful, you know, that you're not pigeonholing yourself too much. You're like, well, we talked to eight people from this one metro. You know, that, that can get a little bit dangerous. And the entire brand's future is now based on those eight people's preferences. It is. You got to be careful. So you got you to be, be mindful of that for sure. When we were talking earlier, you shared that you would go out and you, when you first were starting, you would speak about the seven different things that brands do that get screwed up along the way. What yeah. are some of those? Can you share? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of them is what we were just talking about is not, not talking to your customers in the first place. So just, just saying, I got an idea and, and throwing ideas at the wall, like, like the proverbial spaghetti noodles and just seeing what sticks. And the problem with that approach is is that you end up with too many messages all at once and uh, someone told me years ago when i was at bbdo that messages are like tennis balls if i throw one at you you can catch it if i throw two at you at the same time you might be able to catch two if i throw three at you you're not going to catch any of them so so the tennis ball analogy is really stuck with me because because I see it on packaging all the time, cluttered packaging, cluttered ads, trying to say too much. And I think the old adage is true, uh, which is less is more. So try to say less so that your packaging has room to breathe. 
Uh, and so the only way that you can do that, though, I think the reason why people end up putting seven to 10 messages on a you know very small piece of packaging is because they're not sure which of those things is going to work. So the two end up being very intertwined, right? You put all the messaging on the packaging or in the ad because you're not sure which thing is really going to resonate. But if you talked to your customers more, you would be able to very quickly figure out these are the top three things that everybody, no matter what the audience segment is, that's what they care about the most. And then you can, you know, pepper in some other things. So those are are two big ones for sure. Well, and even as you pointed out earlier, in our world today, where you are getting peppered with advertising, and when I say peppered, I literally mean clubbed over the head nonstop, incessantly throughout your life, anytime that your eyes are open, that you have those seven messages, you're not possibly going to, in the blip of a moment that someone is actually taking notice, actually get all of that across to be digested. Right. Yeah, I mean, you really have to, I love permission-based marketing. I love the idea of permission-based marketing because it allows the person on the other end to engage with you in a conversation. So when when uh, we were helping Nadamu, Nadamu uh, ice cream or Nadamu dairy-free uh, frozen dessert. Because um, it's Nadamu. Because it's Nadamu. <laughs> uh, so when we were helping them, one of the things that we did early on was um, I tagged along to one of their sampling uh, experiences at, at a grocery store. And they they started out by asking uh, customers who were passing by, hey, you want to try a healthy ice cream? Now, kudos to them for asking a question and, and seeing if they're interested. But that word healthy, healthy ice cream, never, the twain, never <laughs> the twain shall meet. And so, so you know, what we, we talked about with them was kind of changing the cascade of the messaging. So going from, Hey, you want to, you want to try some cookies and cream ice cream? Oh, well, yeah. Cookies and cream. That sounds good. Now, just on the flavor alone, which is the number one reason why people try new things is flavor in the food space or beverage space. So now they're trying it. Now it's in their mouths. And now the next thing you can say is, you know, so, so creamy, right? It's really good. And they're like, yeah, it's really creamy. And you're like, I bet you'd never guess that was not made with milk. They're like, what? Yeah, that's crazy. It's so creamy. How do you do that? Yeah, well, it's made with coconut milk. And actually, did you know that coconut milk has, you know, naturally, you know, occurring less sugars than regular milk? And, you know, and then you can kind of start to go into those those reasons to believe, you know, down the road, but you hooked them with flavor in the first place. And you hooked them with something that, you know, was going to be of interest to them, not healthy ice cream, but something else. So it's, it's a good way. I bet you're really good at getting kids to eat things that they don't want to eat. I got my son to to try roasted crickets at one point, uh, one of our clients uh, at one point, and um, as a hard product to sell. It is. I did that. I was at the Expo West for natural foods, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that I had stumbled across the aisle that was all things crickets. And mm-hmm. I went to my pitch mode. This is so many years ago. And of course, when someone says, try it, when before I even noticed what I was trying, you have to shove it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Not all crickets are made equally. It's They're very earthy. They have a very yes. earthy flavor. <laughs> and very dry. Mm-hmm. They can be very, very dry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is very hard to do a sales pitch with dry crickets in your mouth. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that was an intriguing, that was a very intriguing client that we worked on. Because, of course, as soon as you tell somebody, 
Oh, that's made. And, and they made energy bars, actually. So they, they sold roasted dried crickets, but they also sold energy bars, protein bars. That uh, were not dry. That were not dry. They were made with cricket flour. Okay. Yeah. So it's just, it's just flour. Flour. You just take a bunch of crickets that you dry roast, and then you end up turning them into a form of flour. Uh, and then you turn that flour into a bar. And again, those bars were very earthy tasting. But but again, as soon as you tell somebody, oh yeah, it's made with cricket flour, there's that pause, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they start imagining antenna and 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 legs and and you know things like that. Sections. Yes. <laughs> and so so one of the things that we did to try to understand, well, okay, at one point in this country, sushi was not super popular. Raw fish, not very popular. Uh, lobster. I mean, lobster is considered, isn't it considered like the, you know, it was a, the dregs from the sea that only the right. poorest of people would possibly eat lobster. No one with money would deign to eat something that eats the dead things on the bottom of the ocean. Exactly. I'm so glad you used that. I was struggling for that word, the dregs of the sea. And yeah. so, but, but at some point it switched. How did it switch? So we were studying you know, how did these other food movements have that flip? What, what did they do? How did they do it? So, you know, again, sometimes you've got to ask the customer. Sometimes you've got to look uh, to history a little bit to find out how certain brands were able to do it. And then, and then really just kind of follow that playbook more or less. So what is another of these magic seven things that brands do all the time and screw up? They obsess over their tagline. So, I mean, I think it's a good, I think it's a good exercise to go through to, of course, understand your brand positioning. That's, that's critical. And then see if you can, you know, turn that into an effective, compelling and memorable tagline. But the thing with the tagline, and I've done this in talks before, um, where I'll put on the screen, okay, here are four taglines, unaided awareness. Tell me which brands do these taglines belong to right we could play this game right now here's a tagline that's printed on numerous uh, uh packages uh it's a it's a multi-billion dollar global company here's the tagline you tell me what it is family greatly family greatly family greatly i think that's the tagline i'm pretty sure that's the tagline i have no idea but for some reason i've decided it's great lakes and it's butter that's a good guess it's craft. There you go. They make lots of things out of butter and they yes. do have lakes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but they're everywhere. Another one, uh, I just I just ordered something uh, recently. I'm, I don't want to give it away, the category, but, but, but they're a national chain. I believe they're everywhere. They should be out there in Los Angeles as well. The tagline is better because it has to be. I have absolutely no idea, but like better because it has to be like, mm-hmm. it has to be better because your competitor is sucky and your food is even sucky too, but yours is just a little less sucky. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's good rationale. Not the most compelling tagline, but they, they do, they do, they do make a good product. It's Jets Pizza. Well, okay. to be fair, I don't even know what Jets Pizza is, but okay. not okay. a good fair. tagline. Fair, fair. Maybe you got Domino's out there. I know Domino's. Oh, we have Domino's a definitely lot. Definitely a national yes. chain. So point is, is that there are brands out there who have, you know, invested millions of dollars into not only coming up with the tagline, but then making sure it is stamped on every package, every piece of collateral, 
everywhere you go. And yet we don't know what their taglines are with unaided awareness. Sometimes even with aided awareness, we don't know what their taglines are. So the solution that I have for that, or the thing that I recommend to, to clients and to brands is instead of obsessing over your tagline, make sure that your brand vibe, your brand ethos, you know, everything about you is, is in lockstep and is recognizable from a mile away, right? So the example I like to give for that is if you were to walk into a Quentin Tarantino film or a Wes Anderson film, okay, uh, halfway through the film, you didn't know that it was from that director and you walked in within a minute, you would be like, is this a Tarantino film? Because I'm detecting a lot of dialogue, a lot of, or violence. A lot of cussing. Yep. Something like a lot of cussing, things like that. It's a Wes Anderson film. You're going to be, you know, everything is so stylized, the, the, the outfits, the, the placement of the camera, all of these things. And so it jumps out at you right away. And, and that's going to be more memorable than just a tagline, probably. And see, you're speaking my language because my agency is Hollywood branded. And what we mm-hmm. specialize in is product placement. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times we'll have someone say, oh, I want to get my product into X, Y, and Z. That's great. That's fine. Mm-hmm. We can get products left and right but it's about building a brand and it's getting Mm -hmm. your brand to be associated with the best of Hollywood that makes your brand now be seen in a bigger way. Could be a product, could be a brand, but it's using and leveraging your essence and the brands that do the best of that are the ones that you can recognize because Mm -hmm. of their, it doesn't even have to have a logo. If they're Mm -hmm. streamlined and sleek, or if they do have the right logo, or even if they're positioned with the right people, if it's spot on, Mm -hmm. you just automatically will make that assumption. I I love what you said there about associations, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we, we help our clients with social media. We look at a lot of social media, uh, you know, accounts and, you know, what are the biggest brands doing to be successful on social media? And you can make images today just as good as another brand, right? But you've got to build the network. You've got to build the associations that you have with your brand. I love what Truff Hot Sauce did in the very beginning. I'm a big fan of Truff. I'm a big fan of guerrilla marketing. And they started out um, not in any grocery stores. They started out in, in fashion boutiques. They said, well, let's, you know, this is a $15 bottle of hot sauce. So let's, let's place ourselves next to these, you know, hundreds of dollars, you know, or thousands of dollar bags or shoes or outfits and, and see if we can get some attention that way. So that, that, that sort of zag strategy of showing up where others aren't willing to show up um, or just showing up where your market's going to say, oh, you know, this stands out. There's no other hot sauce in this, in this clothing store. So having those associations, and and so they became associated with high-end pop culture boutiques. And I believe one of their initial ideas was, or or, or one of the kind of aha moments they had was, you know, how come you see um, certain alcohol brands in rap or hip-hop videos, but you never see a hot sauce brand? So they said, let's make make the, the world's first luxury condiment, luxury hot sauce brand. And that's what they did. And that's smart marketing. They yep. differentiated from competitors and it doesn't matter why. It's not that their hot sauce is necessarily better than this other hot sauce. It's just, it means something different to the consumer who's purchasing it. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, I will say this. It isn't like anything I've ever put in my mouth before. So the taste of it is off the off the charts. But then beyond that, they invested. They've never repackaged. So, you know, a lot of brands, they'll do their first packaging, second packaging, third packaging. It costs them a lot of money to keep redoing that. And, and they stumble and they lose time and they have to tell everybody, hey, it's the same great brand now in a new package. Well, they spent the time in the beginning to make sure that package looked like it belonged in a, in a music video. And so it is, it jumps off the shelf because it looks so different. And then it tastes so different. And people, I mean, when you go to their Instagram, uh, you know, channel, every single comment on there is like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever eaten. So between the, between the price point being uh, so crazy high, some are $15, some are $35 a bottle, uh, and all the great feedback. And then, of course, the rest of their marketing and the associations that they've developed, the partnerships that they've done. They have this wonderful award-winning partnership with Hidden Valley Ranch. They've done partnerships with Super Mario Brothers, so on and so forth. So they, they've built that network through very carefully curated partnerships where they're blending a kind of a high-low type thing. Like they partnered with Taco Bell, which... Yeah. Sounds shocking, but I believe it was very successful. Like, why so. not? And Taco Bell does not care so much about their sauces. They care more about creating cool publicity stunts mm -hmm. at this moment. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I hope that that helps answer that one. There, there's even more, but keep going. So, what's the third option of what think brands screw up all the time? So, functional versus emotional benefits, right? So, just talking about your, your rational reasons to believe why, you know, why should, why should you buy this? Well, because we got this many megapixels or we got this many cameras on it, or we've got this, or we've got that We're we're non-GMO and we're gluten-free. All of those things can be reverse engineered in a heartbeat these days. So, so focusing on the top of the brand pyramid where you've got the emotional or irrational reasons to believe. And that's that cool factor to some extent, right? Well, we want to be cool. Okay. You're well, speaking my language again. <laughs> the whole product placement and pop culture partnerships. That yeah. Because when brands are cool, they stand out and people take notice and then they purchase them. Right. But it has to be natural. I've seen some product placements that feel so forced. Understand. And, and so it's got to be natural. But I think, um, you know, with functional versus emotional benefits, I, I, I love that scene um, and I'm, I'm dating myself here, but uh, did you ever see Coming to America? I know that's an, it's a classic. Of course, of course. That's a classic, but you've got the Big Mac versus the Big Mick. You do. Right? There's McDonald's versus McDowell's. And, and Mr. McDowell talks about how that, you know, they've both got all beef patties, uh, you know, pickles, onions, lettuce, tomato, uh, but their bun has sesame seeds, our bun doesn't have sesame seeds. I think that's right. It's either, it's one or the other. Somebody's got sesame seeds and one. Accurate. And, and Akeem, you know, played by Eddie Murphy is just as like, oh, okay. So that's the one thing, right? And, you know, that, that can work. I mean, you know, if you go, uh, you know, to Burger King, you've got the Whopper and some people are very true to their Whopper uh, enthusiasm. Uh, and, and Burger King even made uh, a great campaign years ago called Whopper Freakout, where they gave them a burger that wasn't a Whopper. It was actually, I don't remember what they gave them, but it wasn't a Whopper. And the person 
the people would come back and they filmed it with hidden cameras and they were like what is this i'm not paying for this this isn't my whopper I yeah want my whopper yeah i need i need my whopper now uh, so some people are very brand loyal um but a lot of times the, the tests that we do with clients or one of the things that we'll show them and this isn't to not gatorade or powerade but a lot of times when you look at those ads if you removed the logo from some of these, even big brands, okay? I mean, Gatorade's a big, big brand. But sometimes you can take away their logo from the ad and just ask someone, so who's behind this ad? It's just content. Yeah, it's just somebody dunking a basketball or it's someone, you know, running around the track or something like that. You know, it's an intense, beautifully shot picture if it's in print or, you know, it could be a video, things like that. But, but it's not different enough. And that's the challenge is you get a lot of copycat brands. So the challenge is to always keep finding ways to differentiate yourself and, and, and differentiate yourself though in an emotional way. You have to have the functional reasons to believe, but even more important, you have to have those irrational or emotional reasons to believe, which again, the only way you're going to get there is by talking to your customers and finding out what moves them in their lives on a daily basis and then trying to tap into that. And did you know that McDonald's partnered with Coming to America 2 to do a whole co-promotion when it came out with Paramount in the last couple of years? Interesting. I did not know that. I didn't see Coming to America 2. It didn't get great reviews. So I decided to save the precious hour and a half. You know, it's on Amazon. It's not the same. But yeah. it's not something that is, it's not dreadful. It's, it's, it brings you back into time of the memory. If you like the first one, you'll like the mm-hmm. second one. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the same. There's just an evolution that's happened and it's a little bit more over the top and in your face. Well, and that's that's the challenging thing, whether you're in movies or you're a brand, the 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 kind of self-consciousness, right? Like we know where we've been before. I mean, I think about, again, I'm dating myself, but all the Lethal Weapon movies as each new sequel came out or the Scream movies or the Marvel movies, they know that the audiences know what the tropes are. They know what the formulas are. So then they kind of do like a little bit of a wink and a smile and they have fun with it. You know who does this really well? Who's really, I mean, I just admire the heck out of their branding is Liquid Death. Yes, they're right? excellent at their branding. They yeah. are unbelievable skyrocket to success brand for a reason. Yeah, and it's water. It's water in a can. Now they've got some iced tea, but but you know, and and so everything from the name you know, to the way that they'll take criticisms and turn them. Have you seen this thing that the, what is it? The, the hateful eights, like they, they made, they've made these playlists on Spotify um, where, you know, they, they've made songs um, that, you know, leverage some of the, the hateful comments that people have shared about the brand because they don't like it or what it stands for. Boy, that's such a stupid name, things like that. They just feed off of it. They, one of the, what, what, the, what they do really successfully that I talk about in any insights yet is that they've managed to harness conflict. They, one of the and techniques- And make it their own from doing Yes, and, and like, make it their they, own. It's the same thing as stepping into fault and just celebrating it and sharing that, yes, that you own it. This is yours. This is who you are. And what do you mm-hmm. want to do about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not perfect. It's not for everybody. So either take it or leave it. If you don't like it, fine. You can critique all you want, but they've done such a marvelous job of taking the negatives and, you know, fueling them 
in the media for as, as far as they can take it. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, NWA albums and things like that. Oh, the more negative press we get, the more albums we're going to sell. And, and so they've done it in a very clever way. Now, if you're a brand and, and, and you're not going to, you know, necessarily do a campaign the way they've done it, but even in a focus group setting, even in a, a conversation with customers, one way that you can start to get toward an insight is, is asking a, a conflict-driven question. Which is better, this or this? Which is worse, this or this, right? So just the use of that little word or and creating polar opposites will start to bring out a lot of emotion in people. So we did that uh, with a bean chip client where we said, hey, are beans boring or amazing? You tell us. Was it Benito's? It was Benito's, yeah. I put it together, Austin and yep. you, and yep. I worked with them at one point for a heartbeat. So, yeah, yes. So we asked that that question, and I was amazed at how many people were waxing rhapsodic about beans, their love of beans, and how colorful they were, and how versatile, and how they 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 just soak up so much flavor, and they can they can carry whatever flavor you want, and. And, and, and it led to so many different new headlines and new ideas for the brand. And so, so just creating a little bit of conflict either in, in your focus groups, in your research process, or as part of a campaign, you know, I think can be very effective for brands. Because it creates passion when there was none. And passion is connected to emotion and emotion is connected to brand. Well, Chris, how can our listeners find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, definitely over there. They can find me at chriskocheck.com. Uh, last name is spelled K-O-C-E-K. Got a website, got the books on it. Um, it's got some, some other goodies on there as well. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on the usual channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then I like to talk with folks like yourself. Well, I'm glad you do. And we have time. I don't want to use up all your time because I could keep on talking to you for hours. But one more thing that brands do to screw up. Can you share that with us? I'll give you two. It's a twofer. So okay. the, the, the quick one, one of them is, um, is spending too much time on organic social media. If you, you know, and hoping for the Hail Mary, hoping that you're going to have a post that goes viral. Because okay. only 6% of your following sees it if you're not putting any dollars behind it and you're spending all this time and energy on your employees versus actually getting eyeballs onto it. Exactly. So if you had to make a trade-up, if you only had $5,000, $10,000, whatever is your budget, and you say, okay, should we be spending this on organic social media or should we be spending this on guerrilla marketing? I'm thinking of like food and beverage brands. You want to get that product into the hands, into the mouths of your potential customers. What is the cheapest, fastest, best way to do that? As opposed to, hey, let's 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 do this photo shoot and let's take this picture and do all these kinds of things. You want your cost per post to be as inexpensive as possible. So that that's that's one area. And then the last area is um, not having your data house set up. So you know a lot of brands they go to market and then they forget to keep track of their data. So yeah, they'll run some reports here and there every now and again. Hey, how many people are coming to our website or? Of course, they care about sales. They're always looking at sales. Are sales going up or down? But there's so many other um, data steps before you get to sales that if you're if you're moving the needle in the right place in the right ways, 
then you're going to start to see an uptick in traffic or you're going to see an uptick in engagement on social media for paid campaigns um, or, or for organic. Um, but, but keeping track of, of those things, creating a useful, uh, regularly or automated data dashboard, uh, that's a huge thing that I see a lot of brands don't do initially. And, and those that do tend to be much more successful. Yeah, I think it's everything. It's not just like your data. I mean, that, of course, is something that's important, but it's all things that as a brand you put together, it's all data and you now have to like keep a library to keep track of it all. But even that content that you're saying on organic for social media, like brands spend so much time investing or trying to get little glimpses and nuggets or content that they're creating and the like. And they don't know how to have a repository for it. Mm. And they don't have someone who is so ingrained, I think, in the company always to know through the years where everything actually is, unless there's a system that's clean. And I see it with clients all the time where new people come in, new people come out. It happens at my agency as well, where mm -hmm. I ended up being the, the keeper of all things, mm -hmm. because if you don't have enough of a platform for it, you're not going to be able to go back and look at that. And right. even with social media, with clients, if you're doing an ad campaign, thinking about what are your metrics and numbers before you start the campaign versus after the campaign mm -hmm. is over, because you can't dial back if you're not tracking. Oh, right. I mean, every brief that we do, if we're going to be doing a paid social media campaign, one of the first background questions is, have we done a campaign before? What are What's the benchmark data? I always say data, but it's data. You're oh, right. Oh, I say the um, No, I wasn't <laughs> trying to correct you. I just say words that sometimes come out, sometimes don't. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, having that benchmark uh, data there so that you know what's the high score you're trying to beat. And and to the repository thing that you said too, um, I, we call it the missing car keys problem, right? If you've ever misplaced your car keys, you spend 30 minutes trying to find out where it is unless you have a tile or something on it. And then, you know, you've just lost 30 minutes. Well, how many pieces of collateral have been created that's that's labeled image 0139246? At least it has is, image on it. <laughs> at least it has image. It's in some random folder. And, and you're like, oh, and, and again, that knowledge, that institutional knowledge resides with like one person. And then everybody's going around searching for it. And it's like a hair on fire moment because it's a great image and you need it now for a press release or you need it for something else. And so, so having systems in place so that you're organized, you know what your benchmark data is and, and you're able to, to move quickly uh, when the opportunity arises, that's, that's key. And I have to say in terms of data and data, there's an entire Star Trek character named. <laughs> is it data? I hope it's data. I think he's data. Yeah, I so. that, I, I'll go back and double check. I did watch <laughs> Star Trek uh, as a kid and that's what I thought. So that's probably why I say data all the time. There you go. Or it's just a Texas thing, but you can't say that because I'm also from Texas. So I don't know. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. Really enjoyed talking to you. You have a great mind and a way of perspective of looking at branding. So appreciate your insights. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Of course. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I look forward to chatting with you this next week. And since I kept on talking about product placement today, if by chance you ever are interested in exploring how your brand can become a star on the silver screen, reach out. I'm happy to connect and we will talk further. Until then, have a great one. Mm -hmm.